Hello, and welcome to the Platform Podcast, part of the Marketplace Risk Master's Program. The Master's Program offers a full suite of virtual content, engagement, and resources focused on risk management, trust and safety, and legal strategy for startups. Be sure to download the mobile app from the Master's Program on the Marketplace Risk website to connect with hundreds of participants, speakers, and sponsors directly. The Master's Program is presented by Aon, Checker, PackSafe, and we want to thank them and all of our sponsors, including Appers Insights, King & Spaulding, Seiferth Shaw, Sitter City, Spectrum Labs, Tint AI, and Willis Towers Watson. Check out the Master's Program Sponsor Center on the Marketplace Risk website for more information about our sponsors to view content they have contributed and to contact them directly. Thank you for tuning into the Platform Podcast, hosted by Marketplace Risk's L. Tucker, a former journalist who writes, speaks, and consults on the sharing and gig economy. L. is also the chair of the Marketplace Risk Advisory Board. Please note, this podcast has been prepared for informational purposes and is not legal advice by the Marketplace Risk team or the presenters. The material discussed should not be construed as legal advice or a legal opinion on any specific issue. We urge you to consult a lawyer concerning your own situation and any specific legal questions you may have. Please contact us at info@marketplacerisk.com, and we can put you in touch with the appropriate professional. And now, without further ado, I will hand things over to Elle. and welcome to the latest episode of the Platform Podcast. Today with us we have Les Rosen of Employment Screening Resources. Hi Les and welcome to the Platform Podcast. Now tell us a bit about what you do. Well I'd be happy to and a pleasure to be here. So I am the founder and CEO of a firm called Employment Screening Resources. We are a consumer reporting agency which is a fancy way to say that in the U.S. we are a pre-employment background firm used by employers to check their credentials and and verify the veracity of applicants before they're hired. So um, I listened with interest to your master's program session uh, the other day and what was really fascinating to me was I first of all discover that you're actually you're also an, an attorney aren't you um which is um great I, I've um, you're the first attorney I've interviewed for the for the podcast so that's very exciting in itself um I like guilty. <laughs> um but also that um you talk about the the trust economy which is a fascinating area for me and I'm sure lots of other people who are interested in um the platform sharing a gig economy what interested me was the trust economy your definition there and I have heard this term used. That's the, the term that you're using to describe uh, the gig or services economy in the sense that it, it's um, a, a service um, being exchanged on a platform. Am, am I right in, in that definition that you use? Absolutely correct. And, and the reason that trust is so critical in my uh, area of focus is that for the most part, gig or platform uh, firms are using people to provide services and those people are often being provided in a very unique way those people are intimately involved in the consumer's life so your children are with them they're in your house they're cleaning they're 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 dropping off dry cleaning or driving around and so the the essential element of the gig or platform coming for a lot of firms is that total strangers uh, come face to face with you, and uh, there are situations created where uh, a great deal of havoc could be caused if that 
that goes wrong. And presumably, I mean, I think a lot about um, these types of transactions that people commit to on a um, on a gig economy platform. Some of them would have a, a quite a small degree of personal interaction with the other person, and therefore quite a small degree of trust is needed. Whereas presumably. Some have um, a huge amount of trust that's that's needed. So on that sort of sliding scale, I wonder if we could sort of share some examples between us of um, a very low trust interaction on a gig site and taking it up to probably one of one of the biggest, which would presumably be something like uh, a childcare or or pet sitting or where where how would you place a few examples on that scale? Well, that gets tricky because, for example, on the scale where you have lowest risk, you might have a platform that provides a virtual assistant. Uh, however, um, that virtual assistant uh, could, uh, in, the, in the wrong circumstances, take your social security number, your, your birth date, and your name, which are which is the tripod of what's needed for identity theft, and, and still cause harm. So I, I say the lowest risk are those type of firms where they're offering services where there's really an HI, no human involved. You're not depending upon the trustworthiness or the kindness of strangers, all the way to uh, firms that uh, we're more familiar with that are the ones that drive your children around or uh, take care of your children or babysit or they come inside your house or they drive you around, those higher risk situations. So even the lower risk situations, uh, to the extent that you're providing individuals confidential information, there's still some degree of risk, even though uh, perhaps not physical risk. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. you and, can look at it yeah. in that way. And I suppose also it's maybe not as simple as a, a sliding scale or a graph and as one line, because presumably also within that is a layer of complication where some people might be more comfortable with risk in certain areas of their life it, than others and presumably that might depend on um, a personality type or also maybe an age group and I know in your um, session you talked um, about millennials uh, and I thought it was interesting um, my I've got a millennial stepdaughter who's 21 and she's very um, unaverse to risk she she will sort of um, buy and sell things on this app called depop and go and collect things from people and post things to people and and she seems to be representative of that generation where they're very used to interacting with strangers via technology and I always compare that with say um, my mother who's approaching 80 who is um, incredibly suspicious of interacting with people via technology and always assumes that she's sort of being hacked or spammed and gets all these words muddled up anyway but you know that type of thing so so presumably there's another layer of complexity to this idea that something's risky or not because it depends what the person thinks of it is that right well ab absolutely and, and there's a number of variables and, and like a lot of variables at some point we with enough data we could start to quantify that and start looking at behavior uh but, but certainly there's a number of people and perhaps more with millennials but also older people as well who might be willing to take a higher risk in exchange for convenience and price so it's all a trade-off. Life, life is a trade-off. Um, but there might be older people who don't care and younger people who are mm. more risk-sensitive. But, but the, the, the overall trajectory of this is that uh, e even a younger person it will, at some point, if it seeps into the sort of national consciousness that a, that a particular type of firm is not trustworthy, that could depress demand from that group. 
Um, so, and a lot of risk also is just based upon our feelings about institutional uh, 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 regulation. So as I think I said in my article, we all get on airplanes, we don't know who the pilot is, but we all have a sense, well, someone's controlling the pilot. So there's governmental or institutional trust as well, which oftentimes might be lacking in the so-called geek economy where there's no government regulation and there's not a history of trust. So there's there's a lot of moving factors there. And I, I think you're right. Essentially, someday the data will give us more information as to each demographic. I think that the idea of there being a history of trust is is very interesting because we do, uh, without thinking, tell our doctors our you know our life stories or you know you know take our clothes off and get on the medical couch all these types of things which are obviously a hugely trusting thing but we don't question that and you gave that great example of an of an airline pilot um, but do you think that that will that will change as platforms become almost institutions in themselves that we are able to put our our trust in them in in the future and this is only a sort of a legacy maybe a generational thing and that people will become you know maybe equally mistrusting or trusting of, of people like airline pilots and doctors because these types of things you know they're, they're they're fallible too aren't they even though they're you know historically trusted or um or regulated in a different way no and that's absolutely true so a few years ago in germany there was a pilot who essentially committed suicide by taking down an entire airplane um and, oh, I remember. And, and, yeah, I remember. And, and so you have those those type of situations as well and, and the real problem is, particularly for platform and gig firms, is that, as I say in my article, uh, this, this business model is, is to some extent swimming upstream because there's still a great deal of tribalism built into the human psyche. I mean, we tend to trust people we know or we tend to trust people who know people we know. And so uh, the, the, the idea of trusting strangers is really goes against uh, you know, thousands of years of, of how humans have developed. Because uh, we're, we're used to it. You, you think about who you trust. Oh, you trust people that you know, mm-hmm. or you trust people who know people you know. And, and so trusting total strangers uh, becomes harder, particularly on, on the scale of risk. And so as the risk is greater, uh, the trust factor becomes more of a challenge as well. Um, so there's just some, there's a lot of slow moving parts uh, to try and figure out the, mm-hmm. uh, the key to, to unlock customer demand and to get that trust. I think that's interesting what you said about people being hardwired to not trust strangers. But what I find interesting when I'm supporting platforms with their marketing, um, I try and explain to them that what we're trying to do is, is to get people to trust their platform, which is one job, but also to get people within the platform to trust each other. But when we're talking about the brand itself, people are will put their trust in, in a brand, um, which in a way, could be a stranger to them. Um, they, they have a sort of brand name or a, a, a logo or a sense of that brand, but they don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. They don't know if that um, clothing brand, I don't know, uses children in their factories or if that company that they are trusting of at a higher level, you know, is involved in, you know, anything from arms deals. People don't know, but they will put their trust in in a faceless brand, um, which is interesting, really, if they don't trust strangers. You wonder why, but I suppose that that's, you know, that's clever marketing, isn't it? Um well- yeah, well, it is, and, and through marketing, it, 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 
degrees of familiarity at a certain degree, uh, particularly the marketing is clever and appeals to basic core human values. And, uh, and, and but, it, but obviously in terms of trust, I mean, trust is hard to obtain, but easily lost. And so there's brands who will come in to uh, spend years building up their brand uh, and then one disaster. So in the United States, for example, uh, occasionally there'll be an outbreak of food poisoning and, and a company that has been building their brand for years, suddenly they lose a significant amount of customers overnight because of one bad batch of meat. And so that, when it, you translate that to the gig economy, they spend a great deal of time and money to build the brand. But, but one highly publicized incident uh, can destroy years of effort in terms of branding, which is why we, we take the position I've been advocating that firms really need to understand the the need to not uh, to, to minimize the, the ability of these incidents to occur mm-hmm. when, the, when it comes to this, you know, personal yeah. service. We were talking um, just b- before we, we started the podcast there about one um, one of the, the great breaches of, of trust when when everyone used to believe in the sort of was it the 1980s or 90s um the perrier water was literally sort of collected in in wooden pails from the um sparkling springs of the french alps and then it was revealed that it contained some chemical that was basically in every fizzy drink and and the brand you know really um people really lost trust in that brand um but obviously they've um they've redeemed themselves but um they, this sort of thing can happen over overnight can't it right, right. And, and so trust is easily lost and and so when platform and gig and trust firms are, are looking at what they should do and how they should approach it um you can spend all this time and money to build your brand but if you don't pay attention to the basics and you hire someone with a unsuitable criminal record or something other that would have been a predictor uh, of a bad performance and then it, it hits the headlines because someone is injured in some horrible way a, a woman passenger a child whoever um that's then spread over the headlines and mm-hmm. suddenly people are saying well maybe i shouldn't use that service to do whatever that service does because do i really feel safe with strangers mm-hmm. and i mean it's tough for the the gig platform in the sense that it's the it's an individual um, who is who is using the platform as a, as a provider, but they are they've listed themselves on the platform. The fault may be theirs, but the brand that's affected is is much bigger than than that individual. Um, so it has a, a much a much bigger effect than 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 it would do normally because they're associated with that platform. You talked uh, in your session. Uh, I thought this was fascinating about a conflict of interest between. Um, a gig gig platform's desire to to grow and scale, and the actual people that want to use the gig platform. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I, I thought that was really interesting. Well, yeah. The unfortunate matter is that when you look at the economics of the of the gig firm from the point of view of the founders or the the management team or the investors. Well, what they want to do, obviously, is grow, become a unicorn, become the brand name. And to do that, uh, particularly a firm that needs people to drive or clean or watch kids or whatever it is that's being done, um, you need people, you need them right away. Uh, and a lot of times background checks are will slow that down and will eliminate a certain number of people from the applicant pool. Uh, so, and it also costs money. And so sometimes it's, it's, it's considered to be friction. It's, it's considered background checks, maybe considered an expense that just goes directly against the bottom line without much return or much profit. 
Uh, and so basically the, the structure of the gig economy in terms of maximizing investments in order to grow or get bought out or to be acquired, whatever the exit strategy is, uh, doesn't really favor spending a great deal of time or money emphasizing or, or doing really good in-depth background checks. Uh, and so that is the inherent conflict. But at the same time, the gig firm wants users of the platform to believe and trust and, and feel safe about it. And so that's that's a conflict that I don't think has really been resolved very well. Mm-hmm. And do you think that there are some types of services or some industries or sectors who whose services really couldn't be um, in a peer-to-peer or gig trust economy uh, format? Do you think that there are some that it, it just do, doesn't work? It's maybe too infrequent a use. It's too high a trust um, you know, are there some that just uh, get ruled out because of the nature of the, the trust transaction that it's just doesn't, wouldn't work to have it on a platform? Well, it, 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 I, I wouldn't say it wouldn't work. I mean, certainly there's a, a, a great deal of use of these services. Um, at some point, however, what we're saying is a lot of lawsuits, a lot of regulations. So you have these platforms. I'm talking about the high risk use. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening in the real world in the, in the U.S. is that we're now seeing regulators, we're now seeing city councils and voters uh, pass pass uh, rules, and and, uh, um, and we're seeing a lot of lawsuits. And so, from our point of view, from my perspective, is that gig firms uh, either need to uh, regulate themselves in, in a with in reference to some sort of generally accepted standard, uh, which numerous stakeholders are involved in, or be regulated. I mean, those are the choices: get reg, you know, regulate or, or be regulated. Mm-hmm. And, and regulation by lawsuits and plaintiffs' lawyers and, and um, bureaucrats and and, and, and you know, city councils is is not a really good way to run a railroad. Um, this is really something I think gig firms need to be out in front of, which is why one of the suggestions I made is that gig firms really need to get together with all the relevant stakeholders and agree upon a nationally accepted standard uh, for background checks and for vetting. Mm-hmm. So, which has the added advantage of consumers knowing that this is an accepted standard and what's being checked and how it's being checked is um, it, it is something they can trust in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I suppose that the the gig or trust economy won't be able to evolve unless the infrastructure around it it supports it um, and can can actually sort of help it to to grow and for people to to want to transact in that way um, because it has to progress and for people to actually come in and and want to use a service a high trust service like the ones that we're talking about. Um, unless there is something there in place, people will be put off and probably maybe never come back to to that idea. Um, and you know, then you know, there's no 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 future um, because you know without that in in place around it, without the background checks checks and the the regulation, then you know people are just going to return back to to the kind of old fashioned ways of doing things, presumably. Well, I think it's exactly right. I, I think that perhaps there is some sort of ceiling. I mean, certainly, as we talked about, a certain number of people are willing to use the service. And, and my, my suspicion is, although we don't have any data yet, is that a lot of users of the service 
are just discounting the background checks. They're, they, they either don't know what they're about or, or how extensive they are or how valuable they are. But for convenience and price, they're willing to take the risk. And, and, and really, background checks are used by many gig firms really just to be able to get rid of the, of the obvious bad offenders, like sex offenders, which are easier to find, or as a defense in litigation. But I, I think that gig firms and these high-risk type services have, have put a ceiling on how far they can go because there's a segment of the population that would likely be more willing to come out and use these services or be more trusting uh, if there was really a kind of national feeling uh, that gig firms uh, subscribe to a higher standard uh, that has been bought into by not just the gig firms because if you, an industry can't have a self-serving standard because uh, no one's going to believe that but a standard that has been arrived at by all the stakeholders, which includes uh, as, as, uh, plaintiff's attorneys and, and regulators and, and, and the uh, employees themselves. So a whole variety of people setting a national standard um, would probably be in the economic best interest of the gig firms mm-hmm. in the long run. And in the short term, it may be that the standard is, is more uh, strict than they're currently doing. But in the long run, uh, if you could... Uh, adhere to a nationally accepted standard, uh, I, I think that would actually be to the advantage of gig firms. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've talked about gig economy platforms and, and the trust economy. Sitting alongside that is obviously the, the sharing economy. Um, I tend to think of, of the difference between the sharing and gig economy as being um, the gig economy is, is the service that's being um, exchanged on, on the platform, whereas with the sharing economy, it's usually a physical asset. So that could be something like, well, anything as large as your home to your car to um, the, the idea of stuff sharing any things that you have from sort of camera equipment to camping or, um, I don't know, uh, leaf blowers from for your garden, etc. Now, we talk about trust with a service, and, and that's really, um, I mean, it, it's really easy to understand why people would want that quite often you might be allowing somebody that you don't know into your home etc but there's a huge degree of trust with a transaction based around an asset as well say for example if you are allowing someone to use your car or you're having someone come to your house to borrow a a piece of equipment from you um you know you're still interacting with that person how would you say that the levels of trust change when you're moving you're still on a sharing platform but the focus is on the the item so the risk is more to do with maybe somebody um acting irresponsibly with the item or during the the actual exchange have you come across anything in that area before well, well, we have. And, and so we always re- resort back to this idea of risk management. Where do you fall on the risk scale and is the risk reward ratio? So in a situation where you're sharing a service and you have to still pick up the lawn blower somehow, somewhere, if there's a person to person contact, there's an element of risk there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as a former prosecutor, criminal lawyer, uh, I know that sometimes these situations are, are used where a person with bad intent may list something and and things can go down from there so there's still a risk at the interaction and frankly there's also in that situation there's a risk in who the user is so services that rent out housing for example um there is some effort to do background checks on people who are renting the house so 
that there, there might be risk in that situation for the person who is using the asset. Are they going to steal it? Or are they going to misuse it? Um, and there might be a need for a background check or, or some risk uh, management in that case as well. So it's not just limited to who's driving around or watching your kids or cleaning your house, but but in the sharing economy, there's there's the risk of the contact and there's a risk of, of the user perhaps is too risky. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's work to be done there as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm very optimistic about the sharing economy and, and also the you know the benefits of it and you know looking around you and your community for the things that you need and the services that you need you know to me seems to be a a very positive way that we can use technology to return to the way that we used to do things but I suppose there is that sense looking at it um, from from above that we are we might be returning to uh, an older style of community where we we borrow assets and services from those around us and technology allows us to do that now but in a way society has changed um, and we also need that technology to help us to do it in a regulated and and trusting way I mean I suppose that's a I mean a shame but that's not to say that when we you know, hundreds of years ago, borrowed things from our local community and traded services and bartered and these types of things that did people, you know, people will have mistreated, mistrust, you know, they would have been negative elements to it then as well. So I suppose it's just human nature, isn't it? There's always going to be people that do things like that. There, there, there is, but now whatever danger there was is now exponential because now total strangers can deal with each other. And that's really the difference. So two or 300 years ago in your little town or village or farm, or even 50 years ago, everyone knew each other. Yeah. Um, and if someone misused something, they probably wouldn't be allowed to use it again. Yeah. Now the whole idea of these platforms is to bring total strangers in touch with each other. And, and that's not to say that that's not a great model. In fact, I use it all the time myself. Uh, I'm just uh, advocating for this idea that the technology can also be used to increase uh, safety and security. And no, nothing's risk-free. I mean, there's always going to be some element of risk. So you're not looking for 100% safety, uh, but you're looking for there, – there are the capabilities and means to increase the safety factor by using technology uh, if there's a willingness uh, among good firms to understand that, uh, that that's an important part of the business model in the long term. In the short term, it's just an added cost. In the long term, it's a way to build a business and to instill in the user base a sense of, wow, this is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I suppose that when I think about technology connecting people, it's connecting people on a much larger scale than we were ever connected before. And I suppose that's the part that, that makes it riskier than, as you say, uh, just connecting with your your neighbors and 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 that mistrustworthy person um, being sort of found out and then you know everyone knows about it. It's it's on such a big scale that that's not really possible anymore. So exactly. And so the idea is, is can you increase the idea of community uh, from the, from the older times where you actually knew each other to a community of people who now know each other uh, virtually. Mm. Uh, how do you instill the trust and, and the guardrails so that you still have that same sense of community, but it's much larger and might include strangers? Yeah, that's, and there's a big ask, I, I suppose, from the, the technology and from you know people in general, but maybe it's something that, that we're working towards. If we went forward in time so that the millennials that we're talking about in our conversation 
have are now the older generation, um, if we can imagine what where the platform economy would be then, I wonder, do you think that the everything, the guardrails would be so thoroughly in place that people are using it without even thinking? Or do you think that people will have lowered their expectations and this new generation of millennials passing through the ranks and becoming older you know generationally we would have become you know just more used to the riskiness of the transactions and the benefits of it will will outweigh it um i wonder what that will look like in 50 50 years from now well part of that's hard to tell because we don't know what the events were so we look at the events in the united states in the past two weeks uh with what happened in minnesota and there was an earth-shaking event um that has totally focused the nation and the world on a problem that's been long summering. And so part of it is you, you just don't know what you don't know. You don't know what might happen 10 years from now. If some horrible, horrific thing happens that captures the attention of the country, uh, can shift things. And part of it also might be where you live. So I live in the San Francisco area. Uh, taking a, a car service or using these third-party services, you're in an urban environment, so it feels less risky. But what about in the suburbs or what about in the rural area? So there's there's that, that type of demographic as well. Um, and I, I also think that technology with artificial intelligence and big data uh, will have its uses in terms of, uh, of a better ability to have these type of guardrails and to have give people better knowledge. And after all, a marketplace runs on information and a perfect marketplace runs on perfect information. So the more information that users and buyers and sellers have about each other, you know, consistent with some privacy laws and discrimination laws, uh, the better and more efficient those markets will work. Mm-hmm. And and in fifty years' time, there will have been enough marketplaces and enough data and enough knowledge to, I suppose, just. I mean, we're we're in a kind of new world at the moment, aren't we? So, um, you know, as it matures, as the platform economy matures, all that new data will mean that it you know it, it can evolve to become a, a safer environment hopefully oh and well, absolutely and in fact the, the techniques and, and abilities that now exist uh, to create a safer environment so it's not as much of a technological challenge although the technology will improve it's as much a, a matter of uh, whether or not uh, gig firms and sharing firms see this as part of their business model and they see the necessity of it Mm-hmm. So, the, so in, in terms of my view of the world, in terms of safety and risk management, um, it's, it's not a big technological leap. Uh, it, it's really more of a, of a business model leap in terms of how, how folks want to go about things. Yeah, that's fascinating, Les. I feel like I've talked to you about this for ages, but we are at time now. So I'm going to say thank you so much for joining me today and um, for sharing your thoughts. It's been really interesting. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I hope people find this interesting. Thanks, Les. Thank you for tuning into the Master's Program Platform Podcast. Check out the Master's Program on the Marketplace Risk website at marketplacerisk.com, where you will find 12 tracks of content featuring over 80 speakers in more than 65 sessions. You can also download the mobile app to connect with participants, speakers, and sponsors from around the world. Be sure to follow us on social media at Marketplace Risk. Tune in next week for another podcast.